Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you all. You know, most people can appreciate a good love story. Most people like a good romantic comedy. And of course, Hallmark Christmas movies fill rooms and TVs throughout the holiday season. We appreciate a, a, a good love story because not every love story ends with a happily ever after. Some who want love don't find it. Marriages don't always turn out the way brides and grooms hope that they would. Promises are sometimes broken. People change. Life takes a toll. We appreciate a good love story because we know that love can be deeply painful. Today, we're in week four of our six-week series called Jesus Revelation. During this season of Epiphany, we've been looking at how the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, reveals Jesus to us. And today, we're going to see how Revelation reveals Jesus as part of a great love story. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture today from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 17. The Apostle John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our God, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. You can be seated. 
This passage opens with loud rejoicing and praise because a wedding is about to start. And in what we've come to expect from Revelation, in verse 7, we find a mixed metaphor. This is the wedding of the Lamb. Now, Jesus, of course, is the Lamb because of his death on the cross, but Jesus is also the groom. And this is his wedding day. The bride here represents all of God's people. All of God's people. God's people from the past, from the present, from the future, all pictured together as a radiant bride on her wedding day. Jesus doesn't have many brides. He has one bride, one people gathered together. In verse 11, this groom arrives riding a white horse. And this is describing the second coming of Jesus at the end of history. His second coming is a wedding processional. He has been faithful and true to his promises. And he arrives to bring justice, to set right the wrongs that have been committed in the world, especially the wrongs that have been committed against his bride. He wears a crown, many crowns, because this is a royal wedding emblazoned on his wedding robe and tattooed to his side are the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how the groom arrives at this wedding. And when Jesus returns, he will arrive as the groom and we as God's people will be waiting as his bride because this is a love story. Now, chapter 19 of Revelation is actually the very end of the sixth of seven different visions John has in the book of Revelation. In his first vision in chapter one, we saw Jesus revealed as our divine king, as our sacrificial priest, and as our truth telling prophet. And in his second vision, we saw Jesus revealed as the lion, who is also the lamb, who is worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy to carry out God's plan of salvation for the world. And then last week, in John's fourth vision, we saw Jesus revealed as the child who defeated the dragon. And each of these visions begins with Jesus's first coming and ends with his second coming. And here at the end of this sixth vision, John sees the second coming as a groom arriving for his wedding day. Now, to really understand this section, we need to backtrack in this sixth vision a little bit to describe some of the other things John sees in this sixth vision. At the beginning of this sixth vision, back in Revelation 17, John sees a beast. Now, John actually sees several beasts in the book of Revelation, but the one he sees in chapter 17 is a scarlet-colored beast with a woman dressed in purple riding the beast. So what exactly is this beast? People have offered hundreds of different interpretations of the beast throughout church history and of the woman riding on top of the beast. And throughout chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation in this sixth vision, this beast and the woman are called Babylon. Now, Babylon was an ancient empire 
from Israel's past. Ancient Babylon is located in modern-day Iraq, and centuries before the book of Revelation was written, before John had this vision, hundreds of years before, Babylon had invaded the nation of Israel, destroyed their temple, burned down the city of Jerusalem, and carried the people of God into captivity for 70 years. Now, when John saw this vision, the Babylonian empire was long gone. The city of Babylon nearly deserted at this time. So the beast and the woman weren't describing literal Babylon. Although the beast and the woman are called Babylon in this sixth vision, what John actually sees looks a lot like Rome. John's description of the woman in chapter 17 and 18 matches the, the description of the Roman goddess Roma, the pagan warrior goddess that the Romans believed protected the city of Rome. And in chapter 9, or in chapter 17, verse 9, John sees this beast sitting on seven hills, which is clearly a reference to the seven hills in the city of Rome. The early Christians often used the word Babylon as a code word to describe the Roman Empire. The beast is called Babylon, but described as Rome. So what exactly is this beast John sees? Well, I believe this beast symbolizes all the powerful empires of the world throughout history that try to dominate God's people. For the early Christians, John was writing to, the beast was Rome. In John's day, the Roman Empire was trying to dominate the church, the people of God. The Roman Empire was trying to allure God's people to compromise their faith in the exclusive lordship of Jesus. And if the Romans couldn't get God's people to compromise, to swear allegiance to other lords like the Caesar, the Romans persecuted God's people, sent them into exile, sent them into dungeons and killed them because this is often what powerful empires do. Empires try to use God's people to promote their own imperial agendas and ideologies. They, they try to ensnare God's people with promises of wealth and security and power. And if God's people resist that temptation, empires sometimes use threats and force to try to dominate the people of God. See, empires are happy to make God's people their servant for their power and propaganda. But if God's people resist, watch out. So the beast in chapter 17 represents all of the empires throughout history that have tried, are trying, and will try to dominate the people of God. And I do think that it's likely there will be someday a final beast right before Jesus returns. But I also think the church of every generation, including our own, needs to be alert to beastly empires that try to dominate God's people. So what exactly is the woman on the beast? Revelation 17 describes this woman as a prostitute. And I apologize if my message gets PG-13 here. Um, you probably didn't expect to hear about this this morning when you were getting ready for church, but it's in the text. 
So at its core, prostitution is an economic exchange, an exchange of money that parodies the love between a husband and wife. Prostitution exchanges money to mimic intimacy. Now, many people who become prostitutes, both women, women and men, did not grow up dreaming that that would one day be what they would do. In fact, one of my high school friends eventually became a prostitute. She was exploited and mistreated by men throughout her life growing up. And eventually she grew addicted to drugs and ended up living on the streets of Pomona, which is when she resorted to prostitution. And this was not the life that she had dreamed for herself when we were sitting in English class at Upland High School together. Now, thankfully, she eventually came to faith in Jesus through a ministry on the streets of Pomona, got clean, ended up marrying a guy that she had met on the streets, and they went on to become pastors together. Prostitution is not love. It uses money as a parody for love. So what does this woman represent? I think she represents the self-indulgent and exploitive economies of these powerful empires. The woman rides the beast. She represents a parody of marriage that traffics in money instead of exchanging love. We can see this in Revelation 17 describes the rich and powerful as intoxicated with the wine of her prostitution. In chapter 18, verse 3, it says, the merchants of the earth all grow wealthy from this woman. And in chapter 18, when the beast and the woman finally collapse, it says the entire economy comes to a halt. Now, why go into all this? Well, in this sixth vision, the beast and the woman of chapters 17 and 18 create a vivid contrast with the groom and the bride on their wedding day in chapter 19. This vision visualizes side by side the, the beastly empires of this world against the kingdom of God. The, the contrast between the woman riding the beast and the bride ready for her husband. The, the parody of marriage that traffics in currency that exploits with real love, the marriage of the lamb. So let's talk more about this wedding. Back then, there were four stages to getting married. First was the dowry, where the groom paid a price to the bride's father to marry his daughter. Next came the betrothal. Back then, since most marriages were arranged by the parents, um, the betrothal gave the couple a chance to get to know each other and to get ready for their wedding. A betrothal was more than an engagement. It was a binding covenant relationship between the bride and the groom. And a betrothal might last months. It might last years in some cases. Then came the wedding feast. And the wedding feast was both the ceremony and the reception all wrapped together. And a, a good wedding feast would last anywhere from a week or two. 
And then finally, there was the wedding or the marriage itself. After the dowry had been paid, the period of betrothal was over, the wedding feast was all cleaned up, the newly married couple, the husband and wife would settle down, build a life for themselves within the covenant of marriage. Often they'd raise a family together. They would dream dreams and make goals as they sought to live out the covenant promises that they had made. This is how most people in the ancient world got married. Now, the Bible is not saying that this is how people should get married today. It's not saying we should arrange marriages as much as some parents of high schoolers might want to. It's not saying we should have dowries. The the Bible often uses ancient cultural practices that we don't practice today anymore to reveal something true about God. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is also commanding these practices for us today. So when we look behind the curtain of Revelation 19, what do we see? We see a love story. We see Jesus, the groom, and God's people, the bride. A love story that motivates us to resist the beastly empires of this world that want to dominate God's people with false love stories. We see an invitation to be part of the bride clothed in the fine linen of love and holiness instead of the woman dressed in self-indulgence and exploitation of other people. We see a true love story. So let's consider how this love story informs our worship. And let's start with the dowry. Let's go through those four stages. Because Jesus paid the price for us in worship, we always remember the cross. We always remember the cross. As our groom, Jesus paid the price for us when he died on the cross. Again and again, the book of Revelation points us to the cross. He is the lamb that was slain. By his death, he purchased people from every tribe, language, people, nation, and race. The cross is central to the book of Revelation. And so when we worship, we look back. And we remember the cross. In the words of that great 18th century Isaac Watts hymn, we survey the wondrous cross. Worship is looking back in remembrance at the price. We remember the cross in our singing, in our prayers, in our teaching, in our architecture. And perhaps most vividly, we remember the cross whenever we take the Lord's Supper together. Churches that lose sight of the cross are churches that have ceased authentically worshiping the Lamb. Oh, they may still meet and sing songs and pray and listen to sermons, but losing sight of the centrality of the cross turns worship into a parody. Because in this love story, a price was paid And so in our worship, we always look back to remember the cross, the price that was paid for this love story. And then there's the betrothal, because because Jesus is purifying us in our suffering. In worship, we resolve to persevere. 
We resolve to persevere. We live in between the dowry and the wedding feast. That's where we live our lives today. We live in the time of betrothal. And in Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul says that during this time of betrothal, Jesus is making his bride holy so that she will someday be radiant without stain or any other blemish, holy and blameless. That's what Jesus is doing in your life right now. That's what Jesus is doing among us right now. We all go through hard stuff in life. Every week I talk to people and pray with people going through painful difficulties struggling marriages, unexplainable illnesses, dark depression, crippling anxiety, kids or grandkids who break our hearts, addictions that feel out of control. We all go through hard stuff. Going through the hard stuff is preparation for the wedding day. Our suffering in this life is part of the betrothal because in the midst of it, Jesus is purifying us to be radiant. Sometimes Christians grow greatly disappointed by the church because the people of God can often be pretty unholy. The church can be a place of trauma and pain. And believe me, I've been there. I have my church trauma I carry with me. Church leaders let us down. Pastors disappoint us. Fellow church members hurt us. And sometimes it's tempting to just give up on the church. But Jesus is using this betrothal time, this time in between the cross when he paid the price and his second coming, the wedding feast to get his bride ready because this is a love story. And no matter how ugly the bride might act sometimes, Jesus is head over heels in love with her, in love with you. And he will never give up on his church. Worshiping together strengthens our resolve to persevere in the hard stuff. It helps us resist the temptation to give up during the season of betrothal. In our worship, we find strength when we gather, when we receive God's word, when we pray together, when we celebrate the sacraments together, because we cannot do this on our own. And the whole point of this betrothal is to get us ready for what's next. Then there's the wedding feast itself. Because Jesus will someday return to make all things right in worship, we rejoice. We rejoice. The Bible also often tells us to rejoice in our suffering. Our problems, our difficulties, our trials are a cause for joy, not because they're enjoyable, they're not, but because Jesus is using them to get us ready for the wedding day. My, my oldest son, Wes, got married about a, a year and a half ago. And he's the first of our, of our nine kids in our blended family to get married. And in, in the weeks leading up to their wedding, he and his fiance, Sarah, were really stressed out, juggling details and logistics, navigating family dynamics, managing logistics for out-of-town guests, unexpected problems that cropped up. But amid all that stress, they were so excited because they knew their wedding day was coming. We rejoice in our worship 
because we know the wedding day is coming. Our waiting will not be forever. The the difficulties and stress of the betrothal will someday give way to the joy of the wedding. And so we sing songs of praise, even when we're struggling. Our joy sustains us and fuels our hope when life is hard because the wedding feast is coming. And then finally, the marriage itself. Because Jesus will be in covenant relationship with us forever. In worship, we anticipate. We anticipate. Our worship is a foretaste of what's yet to come, a preview of coming attractions, a leaning forward into a future that we don't yet see. We're already in covenant relationship with God because we're in betrothal, but in marriage, it will be even better. Our relationship with Jesus will be deeper with depths of intimacy and currents of love that we can't even describe or imagine yet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him, for you. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes it this way. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I only know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In worship, we anticipate this forever relationship with our groom that defies categories and language. Because this is a love story. A love story between a bride and a groom. A love story between Jesus and his people. And until the groom arrives, yes, we live among beastly empires that will tempt us with cheap parodies of love that seek to shape us into the image of the woman riding the beast instead of a holy bride prepared for her wedding. But even among these beastly empires, our groom is getting us ready. And mark my words, he will one day arrive as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will bring justice, setting every wrong right and answering every injustice. Evil will be judged when he arrives and his bride will be ready, adorned in the fine linens of love and holiness when that day comes. And so until that day comes, our worship participates in this love story as we remember the price that was paid as we resolve to persevere in this period of betrothal, as we rejoice because we know the wedding feast is coming, and as we anticipate a depth of relationship with Jesus that defies imagination, we are his bride, purchased and betrothed to our groom. Everyone appreciates a good love story. And this is the greatest love story in history. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this image that the Apostle John sees, Lord. And Father, thank you that it is a true love story of an indestructible love that goes back to the very beginning before creation that you have loved us.
with a love, Lord, that cannot be broken. With a love that cannot separate us. And so, Father, we worship you. And we worship the lamb that was slain. The groom who is coming for his bride. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.